Hello and welcome back to the Fire and Fragrance Podcast. Today we have Andy Bird sharing with our FNF class, first answering some questions from the week, then sharing on the faithfulness of Daniel and how we too can live a life of faithfulness. Let's jump right in. Man, so pumped on uh, being with you guys. It's been such a fun first week. I cannot wait to see where this goes over the next months ahead of us. It's going to be insane. Totally, totally insane. And then outreach is going to be even better. Better than our three months here. So, man, love you guys so much. So grateful for the hunger uh, in this squad. Okay. Okay. We're going to need that second microphone. Maybe we're actually going to need two more because I think we're going into worship uh, today as well. So, if we get a couple mics set up so that we can just jump into worship. Perfect. Um, and we'll do one right now because we're going to do some Q&A on the whole week. So we're going to take a little bit of time, just questions that some of you haven't had a chance to ask yet. You've had your hand raised. And uh, anything this week that you just got questions on, want to go a little bit deeper into, we'll take the next uh, bit of time and spend some time on that. And then we're going to hit uh, one more primary message kind of in terms of our response uh, to the goodness and the extravagance and the delight of Jesus. So let's, um, let's pass this. Okay, yeah. Um, Laura, my question. Okay, so I loved when you talked about the need for... I love your accent. So cool. No matter what your question is, it's going to sound cooler (laughs) than (laughs) any of our questions. Okay. I love the chat about, okay, like intimacy and the fear of God and the need for both of those things. Yeah. Um, But I just wondered from from your life, your perspective, I, I feel like I have been taught and like developed habits in life that help me cultivate that intimacy right but and I know that fear of God comes but are there things are there practices are were there moments when you were like okay this is like this has this has downloaded to me the fear of God in a new way okay like how would how would we tap into some of that while we're here that's so good how to tap into the fear of the Lord really good well I would say one is that As we grow in intimacy, we naturally grow in the fear of the Lord. Because the more you get to know him, the more you get to know all of him. And one massive aspect of him is his infiniteness, right? And that infiniteness is what creates the awe and that sense of the fear of the Lord. Um, I would say, too, that the scriptures say that the, the fear of the Lord is to hate sin. So even as we grow in our hatred for compromise then we also, we grow in the fear of the Lord. So those two are so connected. The more you fear the Lord, the more we run from sin. The more we run from sin, the more we fear the Lord. And it's this incredible cycle we get caught up in. I think for me, and this just be personal and real practical, is for me, the, the greatest way I feel I've grown in the revelation of God is through praying the Bible. And it's just, it's through praying scriptures versus just reading the Bible, but to really internalize it, like really, you know, any stories I'm even sharing out of this have come from hours of just internalizing the scriptures, right? Like thinking about the emotion that Peter would have felt when he first saw Jesus after having denied him, just internalizing it, like letting myself experience the moment and talking to God about it, like really feel the emotion. So when you start to pray scriptures, you know, on, um, say, Psalm 27, 4, you know, one thing I desire, this is what I ask, that I would dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, that I would gaze upon his beauty, and that I would seek him in his temple. And you can't internalize that long without falling more in love with him and his beauty, and that's often the intimacy side. But you start internalizing some of the other psalms that talk about the greatness of God. Psalm 145, we will commend your works from one generation to another. Talking about the greatness of God. Revelation chapter 4, when you start to see God as high and lifted up and 
by praying Isaiah chapter 6, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is filled with his glory. And you start to internalize those scriptures the same that we would the Psalm 27 fours. And you get this well-rounded picture of God in both his intimate nearness and also his transcendent infiniteness. And so I think it's important that we do both. And praying the Bible for me has just been one of the greatest ways and um, for, for that to grow as a revelation in my life. Thank you. Yeah. All right. Hey. Hey. What's your name? Peter. Peter from where? Uh, Orlando, Florida. From Orlando. Yeah, Very yeah, yeah. cool. Yeah. Okay, Peter, if you had to be a missionary in another country the rest of your life, where would it be? China. China. Let's go. Come on, Peter. Good answer. I love thank that. You, thank All you, right. Thank you. Okay, so I've heard a few stories, but it's not a typical question, but how did you propose to your wife? Oh. Heard it's good. I heard it's good, so. You heard it's good? Yeah, Is there, like, rumors good. out there? I guess. Okay, wow. <laughs> Uh, well, hopefully we'll get some time. I don't know if we have a schedule yet to talk. Yeah, to talk through. Holly and I love to just teach on relationships, dating and marriage, and and like God's design for marriage. It's just so epic. But um, yeah, my proposal story is hilarious in some ways. We were, um, you know, 18 when we did DTS. I came from Alaska. She's from Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We went on the same outreach. Became sort of friends, but we have nothing more than that. She left, went home. I never left. I did. I had the weekend off, and I joined staff on Monday. So I was not ready to go home. I was needed more time in the incubator. And so um, I w my first job was mowing lawns and trimming hedges. It was the best thing possible for me. I just listened to hours of teaching and the Bible, and I started to really fall in love with God in a personal way. And so she ended up coming back on staff, and we ended up being set up as co-leaders to an outreach to the Philippines, became real good friends, got back from that, a day later asked if we would staff a DTS, got set up as co-leaders for that DTS to go back to Cambodia where we had done our outreach. So now we're three outreaches in, you know, three training phases in, we've done almost two years of life. And in that last season, really, like, m in my mind, crossed the threshold from, like, this, this girl is just, like, my best friend, and there's nothing weird about it, and there's nothing awkward. There's no um, unhealthy attachments. Like, she's just incredible, and we're co-leaders, you know, for all these experiences. So um, we finally had a conversation, and, and both felt, like, agreed that this was mutual, but that we needed to prioritize our season that we were serving with the team we were leading. So we laid it down, didn't talk about it, didn't act together, we weren't together. When we got back from that outreach, um, we uh, announced to our team for the first time, I did, I said, like, I, I'm pursuing Holly. I just announced to him at a team dinner, and they flipped out, it was just pandemonium. And then, um, I, and then I proposed on our first date, like, uh, three weeks later, or a month later. So... <laughs> But it, I needed to give you a little bit of that backdrop so you knew, like, we had a lot of history. Like, we had a lot of time. Like, we were best friends, you know. So I took her on a date. I was going back to Alaska to work because I knew I could make a lot of money working in Alaska, way more than anywhere else. And we were, um, so I was planning to go back to Alaska, and I'd never been home since DTS. So two years I've not been home. And I'm going home, you know, uh, transformed. And my none of my friends were walking with the Lord. So... I knew that um, I needed to go back home. I needed to reconnect with my family. And so before I left, I wanted to take her on one date. It's a longer story. I won't go into all of it. But the Lord made it very clear, and I asked my parents who had never met her if I had permission to propose. So um, I was, we were both 19, and, um, and so I took her on our first date, just the two of us. 
and it was on the it was on the coastline. My brother was the only one who knew. He helped me to plan it. He was doing DTS at the time. And, uh, and I set up a table out on the coast, and uh, we had an epic dinner with just watching the sunset, just the two of us, way, no other people. People couldn't even see us, way out kind of on this peninsula. And she thought that was it because it was our first real date, so it's kind of a big deal. And I'm leaving like in three days for Alaska, and I'll be gone for months. I'm going to go home and work for like two months. And then um, we, I, I, it wasn't over, but she thought it was done, and I was like, no, we're not done. And I had... Um, I had all these roses that led to that dinner table, and then there were more roses leading up the hill to this lookout where we were going to, like, just where I was going to propose, but she didn't know that. So I'm like, we're not done. <laughs> we go up that trail. She gets the 12th rose is, like, laying on this peninsula where there's more, there's dessert there, and it's just a beautiful night. But this is the funny part, and every guy needs a funny part. Every guy needs a dumb idea in their proposal. Every guy. This was my dumb idea. It was my brother and I. So cheesy and so dumb. And just celebrate cheesy, guys. Go old school and cheesy, and you'll always win. I'd gotten her dad's blessing already. She didn't know that. It was pretty remarkable, that whole story as well. So my brother and I's idea was that the overlook where I was going to propose and where that, those roses, where it had ended and there was dessert there, um, there was like a drop off, a cliff, and then another little outcropping. And on that, we had made this huge rock heart out of like 30 rocks this big. Hilarious. It's <laughs> so dumb and awesome and cheesy. And then it was pitch black. So I had this can of gas, and I was going to spread it all over the heart and light it up. Flaming on fire rock heart. Yeah. So proud of my cheesy moment. So it's totally dark. I leave her at the top, and I climb down the cliff. She's like, what are you doing? I'm like, I'll be back in a minute. Don't worry about it. I go down there. I'm so pumped, right? And I take that gas, and I spread it all the way around this huge rock heart, right? And I'm so pumped. I grab the lighter, and I go to light that thing, and one rock lights on fire. <laughs> they were all volcanic, so the gas just went straight through them. They're so porous, right? So one rock's on fire, and I'm, like, trying to stamp it out so she doesn't see anything, you know? It doesn't look like a failed attempt. And so I just head back up the hill. She's like, what were you doing? I'm like, don't worry about it. I'll tell you later. <laughs> and uh, I had felt one thing in prayer that I was to memorize and quote Psalm, or sorry, uh, 1 Corinthians 13 to her before I proposed. So the love chapter, which I don't recommend trying to memorize something when you're nervously proposing, right? So I got down on my knee because I'm old school. And uh, as we were done finishing dessert and we'd been watching the stars for a while, Quoted 1 Corinthians 13 to her and proposed, and uh, she had no idea, no clue I was going to propose that whole time. It was our first date, and of course she said yes. So then I went to Alaska for the first time in two years, uh, engaged and totally in love with Jesus. So it was quite the transformation. So, so fun. So we got married a, a, a little uh, six, seven months later at uh, 20 years old in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, where she was from. And my only regret is that we didn't get married earlier. That's my only regret. 22 years has been pure glory, and uh, it's just been awesome. So fun question. We'll share more when we do, like, our little relationships deal. Hi. What's your name? Caitlin. Caitlin from where? Dallas. From Dallas. Okay, awesome. Yeah. Very cool. 
And uh, if you could visit any country in the world on vacation, where would it be? Bucket Italy, list. for sure. Italy, okay. Yeah. Italy. I have to be a basic white girl and say Italy. Okay. You know, so. <laughs> okay. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> um, I have more of a question kind of like about scripture. I feel like we've kind of been talking about sure. different aspects yeah. of scripture. Yeah. And I wanted your advice because I feel like as Christians, scripture is one of the most important things to yes. hide in our heart. And that's like our spiritual yeah. warfare that we get yes. to use to fight against the attacks of Satan. How would you say is the best way for you personally that you've gone about memorizing scripture and mm. really hiding that away in your heart and keeping it on the forefront of your mind yes. for the situations that you might need it? Yeah, I love that. So, so good. And I can't underline enough what you're emphasizing in the scriptures, just everything. The Bible is just the best, guys. It's just so living and active. And maybe let me say one thing on this. I'm going to go into your exact question. But one of my hopes would be that while you're here, or in these six months, if you've never read through the Bible in your life before, make this the season you go Genesis to Revelation. If you knew God wrote you the most important letter, one letter, and it was the most important letter he'd ever written, you'd read every page. You wouldn't skip a single page, would you? And I know some of it's a little more confusing than, than the rest. You know, some of it you need more background and context. And there are things out there like the Bible Project that give incredible overviews of every single book. So you could watch that even before you read the book. Like, it'll help you understand Isaiah, make sense of it. You know, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Lamentations, some of these books. But if you've never read through the whole Bible, make this the season that you read from the beginning to end. And you really can do it. I have a friend I was just with earlier this morning, and he's... Uh, he is reading through the entire Bible in 30 days. So he's doing a 30-day shred, if you've heard of this. Yeah, the 30-day shred. I don't know that he's doing the one that the uh, Finocchi brothers do, but he is doing a, a version. And it, I think it's becoming more and more popular. So he's doing a 30-day shred. He so he has to read the Bible two hours a day to read the entire Bible in, in 30 days. I'm not necessarily recommending that. You don't have time for that probably in this season. But in six months, you could easily get through the whole thing. So Read the whole Bible if you have never have before. You'll see the grand narrative like never before. And if you want to take it like maybe one step further is read it chronologically. Look up the chronological Bible so that it breaks the Bible up so that you really see the narrative. It's one overarching story. This is one story from beginning to end, Genesis to Revelation, from a garden to a city. And um, it, it really makes sense. So if you read their chronological Bible, it puts the prophets in the context of the kings they prophesied to. So in other words, all the prophets are broken up into 1st and 2nd Kings, and then 1st and 2nd Kings, 1st and 2nd Chronicles are also intermeshed so that you really get the vein, the whole story, and then all the epistles are broken up into Acts when they were written. So it just really makes sense of the scriptures in a pretty amazing way. You can do that, or you can just read the traditional Genesis to Revelation, but I really encourage you with that. To your question of memorizing scripture, I think it is such an incredible discipline to go after, and my answers are going to be a little bit boring to you, but I have primarily memorized the Bible by praying the Bible. And so um, it's, it has just been a life-transforming practice for me. I will be in my office, you know, early in the morning or if I, depending on where I've lived in any given season, just any space that I've had. And I will pick a passage that I particularly want to go after, and I'll just pace back and forth in my room, reading it again and again and again, starting to pray it to the Lord, starting to speak it back to him, starting to ask questions about it. And um, that, for me, has been how I've most memorized the scripture. But you really need to internalize it. Rote memorization, which is like how we are taught in school to memorize, is not near as effective as internalization. Internalization is how actors memorize, right? And that's very different than rote memorization, who was the 32nd president, right? And that's just like you're attaching data. 
But actors don't memorize, memorize through data. They, they internalize it. They live it. And that's the best way to memorize the scripture. Internalize it and, and, and get, imagine it. Get yourself in the story. And you remember it to an entirely different level. So great question. Okay, next one. A couple more. Hello. Oh, that was great. Hi. It's perfect. You okay. get surprised by your own voice there, huh? Yeah. What's your name? Leticia. Leticia. Okay, yeah. awesome. Yeah. Yes, and okay. you're from? Brazil. From Brazil, oh. yes. From from Zion Church. Yeah. Yes, awesome. Also. Yeah, absolutely. One and of the most awesome churches. Uh, and I, I was just on the phone with Teo this early this morning. Had yeah. an epic call on his brand new little baby daughter that he yeah. has, which is so fun. We saw the picture now. Yeah, now that's it's on, on it now. Media. It's now it's social media <laughs> yeah. uh, affirmed. And uh, if you had to live in any one country other than Brazil, what would it be? Um. Okay. Maybe, oh, I don't want to say like again. That's but okay. Maybe Italy. Italy? Yeah. Really? Okay. Yeah. All right. Sounds good. Okay. Your question. <laughs> Okay, so it's kind of like a Bible question, um, and I think it resembles what we were talking about, about uh, holiness and how it's not like a burden. So I'm at Messengers, and we are reading Matthew. Yeah. And so uh, as I was reading, um, I just, you know, like how you read the Bible and it's always like something new. <laughs> yeah. So... Um, I read the the passage where Jesus is like, I don't desire desire mercy. I desire no. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. And I felt like every time I have read that passage, like before, I was thinking about like repentance. Uh, but he didn't say repentance. He did. He said mercy. And I got like a little confused. Like he's the one who's mercy but what does he what does he mean about asking for mercy from yeah. us yeah. yeah yep so the context of that passage is um the mosaic law and it's jewish cultural and religion and so they essentially the pharisees and you know the synagogue of jesus's day had elevated they could no longer do sacrifices but they had elevated they had turned the sacrifice because they didn't have a temple they could do sacrifices in into basically obedience to the torah and uh, that was their form the the mosaic law most the first five books of the bible and so jesus is harping on the pharisees and uh, the cu culture of judaism that what you think is such a big deal is that you observe all these nuanced laws he says but i don't desire that i desire mercy and he doesn't mean mercy from people. He's elevating a value, a cultural value, which the Pharisees had almost none of, which was mercy. Yeah. So they were very distant from the Gentiles who were the non-Jews, and they were very judgmental of anyone who wasn't Jewish. And so he is helping them understand that you, what you think is such a great deal and makes God love you so much, your Torah observance and your sacrifice, is actually not the big deal. The big deal is mercy. And Jesus, of course, models that through his life on that it wasn't about the observance of these tiny little Sabbath laws. He's always breaking the Sabbath laws yeah. with what? With mercy. Yeah. He's healing mercifully on the Sabbath when they're elevating sacrifice yeah. on the Sabbath. So that's the context of that passage. Thank you. Yes, you're welcome. Okay, a couple more. Anything specifically related to these last three days? Anything that would be helpful to go a little bit deeper into? 
Hello. Hi. Hi. What's your name? I'm Shay. Shay. Nice <laughs> to meet you, Shay. Thanks. Where are you from? Um, Alberta, Canada. Oh, very cool. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay. I think my main question really is: we've talked a lot about like boundaries and accountability, and my biggest question I think is: when you're in a place like this, you're surrounded by people that want to keep you accountable and will hold that to you. Yeah. But like. I come from a place where this isn't normal yeah. and there's not that like and my friends don't live a faithful life. So I feel like I'm more nervous when I come out of this that I'm not going to have that accountability anymore yeah. and those boundaries like yeah. and like that goes for like alcohol, sexual sin, like even just cussing like my friends here will make me do push-ups every time I cuss for every letter that's in the, the <laughs> this word. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> It's really annoying. It's that really is annoying. So funny. <laughs> yeah. That is awesome. Yeah. So it's it's good though because it like keeps oh, me I going. I love that. You have good friends right? here already. I know they're pretty you awesome. You have good friends. <laughs> um, but I feel like just from your perspective, in times where you aren't surrounded by such a holy community, how did you go about keeping yourself accountable on your own when you didn't yeah. have people helping you yeah. go through it? Yeah. Great question. Yeah, I would guess for most people in here, your home community is probably not quite like this. It's quite unique, isn't it? It's not a, not necessarily normal, though, of course, we would love to see it more and more normal um, all over the world. Is I would say this is, um, for me, that was the very reason that I didn't go home after DTS. I just knew that I had come out of so much. I knew that my home environment was like all the familiar spirits of what I had wrestled with before. And that I just knew I wasn't strong enough. And I'm, the only thing I had going for me was that I was smart enough to know that I wasn't strong enough. Right? So I just knew I'd had too many immaturities. My foundation wasn't strong enough. So my commitment to go right jump on a staff was like I, not to lead something. In fact, I couldn't even believe that they ever asked me to lead anything. Just so you could get into my mindset at 18 years old. When they even said I could join staff, I was shocked. And when I joined staff, the thought of ever leading anything was never in my mind. The thought was like, I need strengthening. I need a strong foundation. I need more of a firm foundation. So that was for me as I go, I just need another year in the greenhouse. And when I, by the time I finished those two-ish years, um, I would say that there was not much at that point that could have moved me from my foundation. It was, it was pretty rock solid. And um, it, there wasn't any friend or familiar spirit that was going to affect that. And so when, by the time I went home, I was seeing my friends come to the Lord. I was seeing them encounter Jesus. I was speaking at my old Christian school, calling them into revival. And I wasn't affected by my culture. I was now affecting my culture. But it took time. It really took time. And so it is a reason I'm not encouraging you necessarily to not go home after DTS. You know, it's important to, for many of you to go home, reconnect, meet, be with your families, reconnect with family and friends. But I would encourage you that it is very normal historically, it is normal in the scriptures to have a season of training that truly builds your foundation. And you'll never regret it. I would just say to every one of you, you none of you in this room, well, you would ever regret spending two years in a place like this to get a firm foundation so that the rest of your life you're immovable, right? And that's the goal. At the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus teaches, you know, three chapters of this incredible culture of the kingdom and how we're to walk it out. And at the end of it, he says, anyone who hears this teaching of mine and puts it into practice is like a man who built his house on the rock. The rains fall, the winds blow, the streams rise, and they beat against that house, but it does not fall because it was built on the rock. But anyone who hears these teachings of mine and does not put them into practice is like a man who built his house on the sand. 
When the rains fall, the streams rise, the winds blow, and they beat against that house, and it falls with a great crash. So everybody would do well with a season of ensuring that your house is on a firm foundation. And I'm just of the conviction, and maybe it's been a little bit of my own story, is that for after a couple years in this environment, I still needed more maturity. I still needed to grow in the Bible. I still do. I still want to keep growing. I never want to stop growing. But I, at that point, I felt like my house was on the rock. And I can just say from my experience then being 20 years old, still pretty young, is that nothing has shaken me in those, these last 20 years um, off of that foundation. Whether it was the crisis, of, whether it was tragedy, whether it was difficulty, um, I, I've had gone through all of that. But none of it shook the house, if you know what I mean. So majority of you should pray about and consider that if your next step is not one where you know you can be strong enough, even if you know it's your long-term calling, you should seriously consider a season in a place like this to get a strong enough foundation to walk out your calling wherever it may be. Get equipped, get trained, do a Bible school after this. Um, staff a DTS or two, do Rev and Ref after this. It's this other Foundations for Revival and Reformation, this course that we run here. It's a nine-month course. It's one of the most phenomenal courses I think we run. And, uh, you know, do Rev and Ref. And between DTS and Rev and Ref, you have almost spent two years here. And I promise you, you'll have a foundation for life after that. Come and staff a couple DTSs. Get leadership equipping. And in this environment, many of our staff here, that's what they're doing. And I find that our staff, when they leave YWAM after experience like that, they're pretty unshakable. And, uh, and then a number of our students, they do go through difficult, you know, some percentage do struggle when they go home. So I would just take that into account, and if you have something, be wise enough to know how strong you are. Just be wise enough. Don't put yourself in a situation you're not ready to be in, and get the foundation you know you need for the long term of your life. Amen. Okay, one or two more questions. What time is it? Yeah, we got time for two more. Hello. Hi. Hi. Your name? Paulina. 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 Paulina, where are you from? Um, I was born in Mexico, but raised in America my whole life. Okay, where in America? Uh, Walla Walla, Washington. Oh, cool. Mm -hmm. Okay, I was born in Spokane. Oh, yes. I lived there for two years you before. Did. Yeah, let's go, P &W. That's awesome. Yeah. Okay, and if you had to go on vacation tomorrow to any place, where would it be? Spain. Spain. Okay, very cool. All Thanks. right, your question. Okay, I wrote it down. Um, first of all, I just want to say, like, I honor you and I respect you, and we're just so thankful that you would pour into our generation. Thank you. So Such thank an you. Honor. Such an honor. Um, and I wrote it down, um, yeah, just like to speak into the value of a daughter's heart and even how to respect, like, the Lord's son, even through the perspective of being a parent. Yeah. and a dad, and how to build, like, a kingdom of raising up, like, mighty warriors, women, and men in the kingdom yeah. in our generation. Like, just wow. want to hear, like, your yeah. heart and, yeah. Great question. Yeah. So good. I love this. My kids are everything to me. And um, my my son, Asher, as I said, is 18. He leaves on, uh, he leaves on I don't know, he leaves really soon, a few days for DTS in South Africa. And then uh, my oldest daughters are 16 and 15, and then 13, really. So those three are really all in their, you know, f really formative years. So this has been uh, a topic of passion for us, is raising up kids who really are leaders and world changers. And um, so for, for all my kids so far, Asher, I started with him, um, I called it man training, when he was uh, 
uh, started his junior year. He had two years of man training to really help him understand his identity as a man and to be able to celebrate his manhood in a culture and a society that is completely confused on what it means to be a man. And has, um, you know, so, so much of manhood has actually been feminized in the last number of years. And so um, really helping him understand that. And so we spent two years um, developing that. I took him through one topic after another for about three or four months at a time. And in those seasons, he would, we would take a topic like men know how to work hard. That was one of his topics. And I would have him meet with men in the community about the power of uh, hard work and a work ethic. I would have him watch movies that related to a hard work ethic. He had to read books related to it. And then he, at the end, he kind of like wrote summary papers. And I would give him all these crazy assignments in the middle of it where he just had to work his tail off. And then I sent him to Alaska for two months to work on a construction site. Um, to have and I and uh, to actually live it out and um, ha have a boss that just told him what to do and had no compassion for him. So it's good for every man. And so, I, I you know I think for men it is so important because of the culture we've grown up in that has just um, we've had extremes and both the extremes are unhealthy. The one extreme has been like this overly vibrato egotistical male that is just like strong and like to a fault. And, um, and that's been, in some ways, been maybe the response to the other, but it's been too far. It's not what real manhood is. And then the other ditch has been, like, the feminizing of manhood. And it's been losing the dignity of manhood. There's a radical middle that the scriptures call us to and that men were created to live in. And so I've just really gone after with my son and my young son, my son Valor's 10, what does that mean to walk that road of radical middle ground, that middle, radical middle, where he is a man who understands both tenderness and bravery, uh, a man who understands both compassion and strength, a man who knows how to treat a woman in a sacrificial sense and in a sensitive sense, and to help, me, help my sons at least be men more like David, who in one moment was weeping on his bed over his love for God, and the next moment is thrashing the enemy. And I think that, you know, men need to be able to embrace that fullness to not fall in the ditch of like the egotistical male, which is a little bit more how I grew up in my Alaskan culture, um, or fall in the ditch of just the feminization of manhood or the loss of it. So I think that's my heart. My heart for men is they would know how to treat women as, as queens, as princesses, but in both senses of sensitivity, but also protection, like the protector of the family with strength and dignity and manhood, but also sensitivity and compassion and, and uh, that side. And then my daughters, my daughters are special to me. My gosh, when I had Asher, you know, he came out and I was like, I get boys. Like he, he just came out wanting to wrestle the moment he was born, like his hand formed a little gun and he wanted to shoot things. I don't know how, he's just a boy. And uh, it was easy, it was natural, it was second nature, but I didn't have any sisters. Um, in my family either, so I, women were still kind of a peculiar race to me, and uh, my, I understood my wife, she's unbelievable, but she, um, she is unbelievably, like, unique as well as a woman, and so um, when my daughter was born, I was like, I don't even know what to expect, and man, the moment she was born, it was like she had me wrapped around her finger, like big old brown eyes, and there's something in the eyelashes of a little girl that's like pixie dust. And it mesmerizes fathers to, like, where I should be disciplining her. And in the end, I end up disciplining myself. I'm like, I go in being like, that was totally wrong. And then somehow in the end, I'm apologizing. There's some magic in the eyelashes. I don't understand how it works. But it's always been that way. But I never thought I'd end up with four daughters. So, you know, and with our little foster baby right now, five daughters. So there's a lot of girls in my house right now and my sons. And so my girls started what I call dad school two years ago in their beginning of their freshman year. 
And my hope for my daughters has been, number one, is I want to be the protector at the, at the gate of their home. Like, I am, I, I am standing at the door of their heart as their father to ensure that self-hatred never comes in that door. Um, to ensure that body image issues don't come in that door. Um, that to ensure no guy comes in that door that I didn't let in that door. And... Um, and I, and I, especially at their age, and early on when they were young, I convinced them that dating was so ridiculous in high school, and they started, when, the, when they still thought boys had cooties, so they were like, oh yeah, dad, terrible, and I just kept the narrative going, so that they always believed it, they were like, dating, they'll hear people talk about dating in high school, and they're like, that's a waste of time, and I'm like, yes, build friendships, like get to know guys, learn how to have natural friendships, but who, you know, how many people look back on their dating relationships with high school and were like, that was a good use of time, you know, <laughs> at least I did it, so I tried to embed these things early in their lives and that their dad, their first um, three months of dad school, the whole theme was that their dad is their best friend. And every week, all we did was fun stuff. Every week. We just go eat together. We went into the beach together. We went to the arcade together. We did whatever we had to do to go, never forget your dad is your best friend. And I go, I am standing at the door of your heart until I trust a man enough to stand at the door of your heart. And then he will stand at the door of your heart the rest of your life. And then I always tell them, too, I go, I'm going to be your husband's best friends. In fact, they're going to like me more than they like you. Like, we're going we're gonna to be best friends. Like, all these guys, this is family. We're rolling together, you know. But I, for my daughters, I've just tried to really change the narrative of society over their lives, which is so wrapped up in society's definition of beauty, of what a woman should do or how a woman should perform or how a woman should look. And I've just tried to go the opposite direction. I want to raise up city changers. I want my daughters to be city shakers. I want my daughters to be leaders. I want my daughters to know their identity and never settle for anything less. So these, these ladies, are they're strong. They're very strong, and, um, and I'm so proud of them. My daughter, we just finished a seven-day fast to kick off the year, and my uh, 15-year-old daughter, Hadassah, did the seven-day fast at 15 years old. Um, she fasted food and just had liquids, and she did a few smoothies here and there. But they're, they're getting it. Like, there's a strength in them. There's already a passion in them. She, she wants to reform the foster care system. She's lived in it. She's seen it. And uh, her older sister is adopted out of foster care system, and she wants to change it. So I've just really worked to try and change the narrative over my kids' life. I don't want society to write their narrative. I want to write their narrative. And, um, and that's what I've worked to do. They're not perfect. They're kids. I'm not perfect as a dad. But we're just doing our best to write the right narrative over their lives and watch them walk into it. And they are remarkable children. They're really incredible. So that's kind of how I would answer that. Kind of a longer answer. But um, maybe I'll say this and then we'll take one more question. Josh, you pick it. Is, um, I would say this for all of you. Many of you may not have had a dad like this, right? You may not have had this level of intentionality, but I will say to every one of you that the Heavenly Father can be this to you. So none of you are behind. you got to get rid of the feeling of behind. You might hear like, oh, Hadassah did this when she was 15. I, I've never done that. Don't be Feeling behind is always from the enemy. It's always, always from, from the enemy. Well, I've, I've grown up all these years, and I never had a dad in my life like that. I guess I'm just behind. You're not behind. You're not behind. 
Don't ever give in to that lie. And if you have that void in your life of a father that should have played that role and maybe didn't or did it somewhat or didn't at all or was absent altogether, just never allow that to cause you to think you're disqualified from being a woman that walks in the heart of God, right? Or the, a woman of strength and a woman of integrity. None of that disqualifies you. God can absolutely take the place of any earthly father, right? It's not the ideal scenario is that an earthly father is all of that. But there are plenty of situations and circumstances where the heavenly father steps in and he is the father to daughters to help them walk out what it means to to live this out. So I just encourage you with that. Don't any one of you feel you're behind or set back or disqualified from this. This is who our God is. All right, last question. Thanks, Josh. (laughs) Hey, what's your name? Tom. Tom, that's right. From where? Michigan. Okay, cool. Um, I want to be an evangelist. Okay. And what is the best way to pierce a non-believer's heart with the gospel? Wow. Well, I think you're, are you in messengers probably if you want to be an evangelist? Yeah. So you're going to get great, great training on this, you know, over these months ahead. Messengers is just phenomenal for understanding that very question right there. But I think at the end of the day, it's the Holy Spirit that pierces the heart. And it's our, our languages, it's our language, it's our love, it's our interaction that opens the heart for the Holy Spirit to do the piercing. And so I think the greatest piercing of the heart comes from, the, from truth. And you see that throughout scripture. You know, it says in Acts chapter 2, after Peter preaches, they were cut to the heart, which is probably where you got that phrase. They were cut to the heart. And what was it about Peter's message that cut to the heart? Well, it's truth. He just preached truth. You know, he just told them the story, basically, that Jesus was the Messiah. And the one they had killed was the one who came to save them. And they were cut to the heart. So, you know, don't ever think that love takes the place of truth. Love is the truth. And so love is not an absence of the truth. It's not love if it's an absence of the truth. It has to be true to be love, right? It's not love if it's not true. It's just humanism. That's really what it is. And so there's a whole lot of humanism going on there, right there. And we see it where people are saying, no, you can, let's just take the example of the ultimate pain. So much pain right now over the issue of gender. It's so much pain. And guys, it gets so politicized that we forget these are real people in real pain. And, right, it gets heated. The arguments get heated, and you get lost in this, like, cloud of political arguing or whatnot. But these are just broken people that don't know the truth. And then the society, with its false definition of love, comes in and says, no, 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 you can be whatever you want. You can be whatever you want. Well, that's not love because that's not true. It's like Kamiko and my kids going, and they're like, Dad, I just feel inside of me. I cannot figure out why, but I just long to play in the highway. I don't know why. Just everything in me wants to play on the road. And today's culture is going, whatever you want to do, whatever you want to do, if that's in your heart, then you go ahead and do it. What kind of a father am I if I send my child out on a five-lane highway to play because they felt inside that's what they wanted to do? So what we equate as love and acceptance, if it's not true, it's not actually love. And so this is why truth is so important to understanding what love really is. In that moment, the right thing to do would be look at my child and go, I love you too much to let you do what you feel right now. Son, you can't be led by your emotions. There's a greater truth, and the truth is that that's a harmful place to play. So how about I create a space for you to play? And so today we're so afraid of the truth and being canceled and condemnation and being labeled all these things that Jesus was labeled. 
that we move into a false empathy, we move into a false compassion that allows people to continue in brokenness instead of moving them with love and humility and compassion towards the truth because what? Only the truth can set you free. Only the truth. It doesn't say love sets you free. It says truth sets you free. That's why love and truth are more intermingled than we make them. Today we have misdefined love. We've made love out to be anything anyone wants to do. It's loving to let them do it. It is not. It never has been in all of human history, and it's not today, right? Anyone who truly loved you didn't let you do whatever you wanted to do, right? They loved you enough to tell you the truth. So I would say piercing people's hearts is understanding how the truth and love are married together and that's what causes a person to be cut to the heart. Does that make sense, guys? I know that that's a sensitive subject, and I know it's a hard subject, but this is why you're here, is to talk through these things, isn't it? And this is what we're going after together. And we're deculturalizing ourselves, right? We all need a little detox from what the world has um, done to our brains, and we need to come a little bit more back to the scriptures where we can discover the love of Jesus, who is the only one who has ever set people free in all of human history, with compassion, with kindness, but never apologizing for the truth. Why? Because the truth's what sets you free. It's what sets you free. Okay, awesome. You guys good? Feel good? Take a stand up real quick, stretch, touch the sky, high five the person next to you. Thank you. Tell them life is good, God is good, and it's nice to live in Hawaii. All right, here's what we're going to do, guys. I'm going to spend about uh, 35 minutes here, 40 max on kind of one more message for the week in terms of responding to the love of God. And then we're going to jump into a worship time until lunch and just to kind of end out our time together and worship, be super fun. And someone asked me during the break, they're like, where are you going? I'm like, I'm not going anywhere. I live here. So this is home. I live right up the hill. And um, I'll be in and out of the school, like Zane said, throughout the whole quarter. I do travel a fair amount, so, you know, in and out in terms of that. But uh, otherwise, we'll get lots of time together. I'm at every prayer set. I'm, I'm around all the time. So I'm pumped to get to know you guys and uh, get more time together. But that's what we're going to do to finish out our morning. And um, so what I want, Zane asked me to speak on this. It was in his heart on Monday was he was praying. I just asked him, what do you want me to go after? And this was something he felt in prayer. So we're going to end here talking about the response, if God is really, if God is who he says he is and who we now believe him to be, then we've talked about how the right, one right response is whole, happy holiness. Um, you know, one right response is, is the burning ones, wholeheartedness is how I defined that yesterday, that our whole lives and whole hearts are in for him. And today I want to talk to you a little bit about the response of faithfulness. And the response of the long obedience to God in one direction, like long obedience, which we've referenced throughout these number of days and kind of, you know, talked about being 90 and teary-eyed. But I want to take you to the scriptures. I want to take you to the book of Daniel to talk about what this looks like. And um, Daniel's an amazing picture in the Bible. Um, you know, everybody loves David because David makes us feel um, human. You read David's story and you're like, dude, that guy blew it. You know, I've blown it. So like I can relate to God the way he relates to God. And it's quite remarkable. And there's a lot of power in that. And that's why David is so beloved in some ways is he's so in love with God, but he's so human too. And his mistakes, you know, we can identify with him. But we've given, we're given most of our heroes in the Bible, I find it interesting, you know, David, let's take uh, Abraham, let's take Moses, you know, take some of these heroes. Most of them have some pretty massive, like massive fails, like pretty big blemishes. You know, Abraham's the father of faith, and he has some pretty massive moments of unbelief. Like, you know, when he tries to create the promised son, uh, you know, with Hagar and has Ishmael, that's kind of a big mistake. 
And uh, when Abraham, you know, it seems like he's this great man of faith, but when you read his story, and two times he gives his wife away to a foreign king because he's afraid for his own life. And you're like, dude, that's a bad husband move. Like, I don't, no matter who you are, that's a bad husband move. And so you're like, that's not such a great example. And then, you know, David, and you see his, you know, you, and the, I think the, the downside of over-associating with David is that we, sent, we kind of fall into that and go, well, if David did it, I'm probably going to make the same mistakes. Guys, you never need to make David's mistakes in your life. Like, you could go your whole life and never commit adultery or murder someone. Do you know what I mean? Like, so, so you, you can just really, like, you can look at that and go, it, it is awesome. He's human, and I can relate with that. But don't make David your model in every area of life. You know what I mean? Uh, Moses has his own issues. One of them is his insecurity and his over his ability to speak, you know, and the Lord really has to intervene on him on that and appoints Aaron as his, as his voice until Moses finds his own voice. And then Moses got a little bit of an anger issue, you know, he strikes the rock when he wasn't supposed to speak to it because of it, he doesn't even get to go into the promised land. So, you know, there's lots of great things about Moses, but then other areas where you're like, yeah, I don't necessarily need to model that area of Moses. Daniel might be the most upstanding individual from Genesis to Revelation. He might be one of the people you look at and go, I could pretty much model my entire life after Daniel. And I think it's important that Daniel's in the story with us. He's not enough in the story because we often, because of our humanity, we want to relate to people that make us feel more human, right? Make sure Daniel's in the equation as you're looking at your heroes because everyone needs someone in their life who always calls them up. Because otherwise we minimize what's possible, right? We do this all the time because of the culture around us. We just go, well, depending on your friend group, and this probably isn't majority in the room, but you might just say, I don't have a a single friend in my life that hasn't had sex before marriage. And you go, well, it's just no big deal. It's what everyone's doing. And then you just, we just fall into cultural norms. No, no, no. You got to have a Daniel in your life that goes, no, no, no. We can all live differently. We can all live differently. Like there's another way, right? And so Daniel's that guy in the Bible. You really look at his life and you're just like unbelievable. And what's powerful about Daniel is that um, he lived and he was ruled over by three different kings in his lifetime, and all of them were idol-worshiping, demonized kings, all of them. And uh, they all had glimmers of hope and glimmers of light, and all their glimmers of light and hope came from Daniel. Daniel, in the beginning of the book here, just so you know, set a little context and we'll jump in. He is the last of the tribe of Judah to be taken into exile. So Israel's in sin. They're in idolatry. God is judging them to turn them back to him. They don't turn back to him. And his final course of judgment is that Israel is taken into captivity. The northern ten tribes are taken by Assyria. They're scattered around the Assyrian world. A number of years later, it's the Babylonians who come in with Nebuchadnezzar. They conquer Judah, the last two remaining tribes, Judah and Benjamin. Benjamin, and Daniel is part of the royal court of Judah and Benjamin as a young man. He's probably 12, 13, 14 years old, okay? And he was already being groomed in the royal court of Israel. So when Babylon comes, they take over Judah, they bring them back to Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar's the king. Daniel is immediately taken from the royal court of Israel, and they, Babylon goes, let's not waste Israel's talent. Let's bring them into our royal court and make them work for us. So Daniel chapter 1, the story that you're all familiar with, where Daniel and his friends, a few of them, are brought into the royal court of Nebuchadnezzar, and they are these young men that are being prepared for service to the nation. 
It says that the king ordered, verse 3, Ashpenaz, chief of his court officials, to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility. Okay, so that's the context I was just saying. Young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning. So they're like Zane, basically. Well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. Okay, so that's the those are the definitions of the qualities over Daniel and the others that are brought into him. And the things that I like to highlight out of that is Daniel was known from a young age because he's a he's a young teenager. We don't know exactly. Is that he was known for excellence and he was known for teachability at like 13, 14 years old. Let's just call him 13 for the rest of our conversation. I don't really know how old he is. He's excellent, and he's teachable at 13 years old. So this is where they want him to eat the food that's been sacrificed to the idols of Babylon, and Daniel goes, no, I won't eat that food. He goes, just trust me. Give me fruits and veggies, and I'm still going to be stronger than everyone here. It's a pretty cool moment. And the, the court guy goes, if you're weaker than everyone, he goes, I'm the one who's going to die. They'll kill me if I don't take care of you. And Daniel goes, trust me. We'll be smarter, and we'll be stronger than everyone else, right? Such an epic moment. 13, 13 years old. And as far as we know, and we're told in this story, we only know of four faithful Israelites in all of Babylon at this point. There's probably more, but we only know of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego versus the world. We're talking four teenagers against an entirely demonic, idol-worshiping kingdom, and in every single competition, every odd, if you had to bet on one of those teams, 100 out of 100 times, you're going to bet on Babylon to win that. Are you not? Who's going to win? Four teenagers or Babylon, right? And yet you're going to think Babylon's going to win. Well, Daniel's already getting under the root of that thing. So you know the story. Daniel resolved not to defile himself. He wouldn't eat the royal food because it had been sacrificed to idols. And as a faithful, loyal God follower, he refused to do anything with idolatry. And then, uh, of course, the, the servant comes back, and they are wiser, and they are stronger than everybody else. God has protected them, right? It's kind of the beginning of their story. I'm going to read you. You don't have to follow along. Just listen, maybe, or take a few notes, because I'm going to move through some of this kind of quickly. It says about them, I'm going to give you some of the descriptions of Daniel's life. These four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning. And Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. What I love about this is this is Daniel destroying the age-old argument of spirit and truth. Here's a young man who has aptitude for learning, knowledge, and wisdom. He's excellent in his foundation of truth. And for him, he would have had the Torah memorized. He would have had Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy memorized by heart, okay? And at the same time, he understands visions and dreams of all kinds. He's a spirit guy. That's to why, again, you've got to keep Daniel in the equation in terms of your, your life goals. Daniel's got to be in the equation, okay? So it defines him as that. Now, chapter 2 goes on. Nebuchadnezzar has this crazy dream, and nobody can interpret it. But then, of course, it's Daniel who interprets it. And it says in uh, verse 14 of chapter 2, Daniel speaks to the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, with wisdom and tact. I just love that. Sometimes in our youthfulness, we rule out wisdom and tact, and we go, no, that's not fire, you know what I mean, or that's not zeal. Well, it worked for Daniel, and before long, Nebuchadnezzar is going to confess that there is one God, and it's the God of Daniel. And he's speaking with wisdom and tact as a young man. Maybe he's two or three years older now. Maybe he's a middle-aged teenager. You know, maybe he's at 16, 17. We don't know. But he's known for his wisdom, his maturity at a young age. He interprets the dream. For Nebuchadnezzar, it's incredible interpretation because of it. He is elevated to a greater position in the royal court. Chapter 3 comes along, 
And this is the epic story that we referenced yesterday where Nebuchadnezzar has a very egotistical moment, builds a statue about himself, commands everyone to worship him. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are saved, and because of it, they also are elevated in the service of the king. Nebuchadnezzar is so stunned by the miracle, now they're given great favor. So, so that you understand the power of this, these are four slaves who are now rulers in a foreign nation. They're made governors of different regions of Babylon. God's put favor on their lives, and they're, let's make it up, 17, 18, they're your age right now, okay? Pretty incredible. Now in chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar has another dream, and it says uh, he's, he, uh, he's wanting everyone to interpret the dream. And then Daniel is the one, Belteshazzar, chief of the musicians, which was the Babylonian name they gave Daniel. I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you, he says to him. This is Nebuchadnezzar, and no mystery is too difficult for you. So this is the pagan king, goes, Daniel, I know that the spirit of the holy gods, he doesn't even get it, that it's one god, it's Yahweh. He's like, I don't know, you're different. The spirit of the gods is in you. And, um, and no mystery is too difficult for you. So Daniel interprets the dream for him as well. Um, and he says to him at the very end, you alone can interpret this because the spirit of the holy gods is in you. He knows there's something different about it. Now, what's crazy about this is Daniel's a young man. Let's place him in his early 20s. Time is moving forward. And um, you, at this moment, you have favor, and you're with the king, and he had a dream. And it'd be tempting to interpret the dream in a way that would earn more favor. Daniel does the opposite. The interpretation of the dream is rough, and it's judgment on Nebuchadnezzar, and Daniel doesn't hold back, and he ends by saying, renounce your sins by doing what is right to the king, to Babylon. Daniel's like, if you kill me, you kill me, but I am not apologizing for what God says. Do you know what I mean? He's just like, I'm not doing this for favor or position or title. I, I'm, I'm here because I obeyed God, so I'm not going to stop obeying God now just because I'm here. This is a huge lesson for us because many times people get position, they get influence, and they change what got them position and influence, which was obedience to God. And they get into that place where now they're influential and they have a voice and they have position and people are, they're leaders. And all of a sudden they change what made them a leader, which was humility. It was the fear of the Lord. It was intimacy. You know, they, they have a following now. There's a bunch of people watching them on Instagram. They're leading a hundred people or whatever it may be. And they change their value system. Now they're the man or woman of God. Now they've got all these other people following them. Now, you know, I've got to lead according to the people instead of according to God. Daniel never changes. He's like, I should have been dead from the beginning. Like, I was 12 years old, and I wouldn't eat the king's food. I should have died right there. He's like, so I'm not hedging my bets here, and I'm not here to stay alive, and I'm not here to be a ruler in Babylon. I'm here to follow my God. So Nebuchadnezzar is what it says. You need to repent. You're full of sin, and you need to start doing right. And Nebuchadnezzar does. Like, you know, Nebuchadnezzar receives it. Actually, the dream is fulfilled. He goes crazy for a season. It's a whole story that I won't get into, but Daniel's prophecy comes true. Now, Nebuchadnezzar's gone, and his son begins to rule. And this is a famous story in Daniel chapter 5 about his, uh, his son, Belshazzar. Belshazzar becomes king, and it's the one real famous story about him is where the hand appears and writes on the wall, right? You know this from Veggie Tales, at least, or like, you know, whatever it came from. And the hand writes on the wall, and they go, what in the world does this mean? They're all struck. They're like, oh, my gosh, there's these words we've never understood. No one can interpret them. And you got to love this. The queen, hearing the voice of the king and his nobles, came into the banquet hall because they, they have fear. They are struck with fear. A hand appeared out of nowhere and wrote on a wall. What would you do? They're freaking out. And, and the queen says, may the king live forever. She said, don't be alarmed. Don't look so pale. They're they've, like they've seen a ghost. And he says, there is a man in your kingdom who has the spirit of the holy gods in him. There it is again. 
In the time of your father, Nebuchadnezzar, he was found to have insight and intelligence and wisdom like that of the gods. So he's been forgotten. In the, in somehow in the change of kingdoms, he's not in the position of favor he was anymore. He's been forgotten. Belshazzar doesn't even know who he is. He goes, there, but there's a man. Your father, King Nebuchadnezzar, appointed him chief of the magicians, enchanters, astrologers, and diviners. Don't you love that? Daniel, as a God-fearing Jew, is the leader of all of the witches of, Neb- of Babylon. He's their... How does that work? I have no idea. But he's the, he is the leader, the one true God. They're all doing divination. He's hearing the voice of God. Unbelievable. Daniel, um, whom he called Belteshazzar, was found to have a keen mind. This is the queen still. Knowledge. She can't stop talking about how amazing he is. Understanding and the ability to interpret dreams, explain riddles, solve difficult problems. Call for Daniel, and he will tell you what the writing means. So Daniel was brought before the king. King said to him, Are you, Daniel, the one of exiles of my father, the king, brought from Judah? I have heard that the spirit of God is in you, that you have insight, intelligence, and understanding wisdom. I love this. Listen to this, guys. The wise men and enchanters were brought before me to read this writing and tell me what it means, but they could not explain it. Now I have heard that you are able to give the interpretation to solve difficult problems. If you can read this writing and tell me what it means, you will be clothed in purple, which was the color of royalty, have a gold chain placed around your neck, and you will be made third highest ruler in the kingdom. He goes, you'll be the third highest ruler in the kingdom and gold and purple if you can tell me what this means. You got to love this. Daniel's first sentence, you may keep your gifts for yourself. (laughs) You may keep your gifts for yourself and give your reward to someone else. That's what he says. First sentence, nevertheless, I will read the writing for the king and I will tell you what it means unbelievable. This guy's gutsy. I don't know if he's in his 40s now. He's in 50s. I'm not sure. Some time has passed now, right? Quite a bit of time. And then he goes on, your majesty of most high God gave your father Nebuchadnezzar sovereignty, greatness, glory. And he basically gives him a word of judgment that the king is going to be taken from him. He says, you, Belshazzar, his son, have not humbled yourself, through, though you knew all of this with a story of what God had done to Nebuchadnezzar. Instead, you've set yourself up against the Lord of heaven. You had the goblets from his temple brought to you and your nobles, your wives, and your concubines drank wine from them. You praised the gods of silver, gold, and bronze. You did not honor God, and he has set his hand against you. And uh, then as Belshazzar's command, Daniel was clothed in purple, even though he told him this condemning message, clothed in purple, gold chain was placed around his neck. He was proclaimed the third highest ruler in the kingdom. He didn't want any of it. And the message is one of judgment. That very night, Belshazzar, king of the Babylonians, was killed that night after he appoints Daniel as the third highest ruler in the kingdom. And Darius the Mede took over the kingdom at the age of 62. So Daniel has now gone through two kings of Babylon, and both of them end up basically realizing Daniel is real, he's right, he's true. And Nebuchadnezzar surrenders and says that Daniel's God is the one true God. So instead of Babylon winning, Daniel keeps winning. All the darkness of Babylon cannot flip Daniel on his head. Daniel's flipping Babylon on its head. And how crazy is this? The night that the king dies, he anoints Daniel as the third highest in the kingdom, dies that night. Then a new kingdom takes over. Remember I talked about the Assyrians? They ruled the region. Then the Babylonians conquered them. And this night, the Persians conquered the Babylonians. So now the Persians are leading this whole region of the world. And Daniel inherits the third highest reigning uh, ruler in the kingdom so that when the Persians take over, they immediately recognize the favor on Daniel's life. So now we're Daniel chapter six. We're fast forwarding. This is where I'm going to spend a few minutes before we end today is that this now is 60 
three years after Daniel has been brought into captivity. So I'm sorry, 68 years. It's 68 years after Daniel was brought into captivity. So this is the last chronological chapter of Daniel's life. The rest of the chapters, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, are his encounters, his visions, his dreams, his angelic visitations, but the story has ended. The story ends in Daniel chapter 6 of Daniel's life, right? So at this point, 68 years old, let's just say he was 13 years old when we started our story, when he was taken over for the sake of math, and the man is 81 years old. So this story is the most famous Daniel story, right? Daniel in the lion's den. But did you ever picture him in his 80s in the lion's den? He's Lauren Cunningham's age. He's in his 80s when the time this story happens in Daniel chapter 6, which totally changed the story. You need to know this, that for 68 years, he has faithfully served God in a pagan culture. For 68 years, he has endured idolatry, demonized kings, and he's been in the mix He's been in the political realm. He's been in the economic realm. He's been in where all of the temptation to cheat, to just bend the rules a little bit, to fudge just a tiny bit. He's been in that hard. The hardest place in the world to have integrity is with politics and money, which is why we see it all the time. It's the hardest place to walk with integrity is in government and money. And this is where Daniel has lived, and he has lived faultless among the Babylonians, right? So now the Persians are leading, and here's where we're going to spend our 20 minutes, okay? So jump into this part of the story with me. It pleased Darius, he's the new leader, to appoint 120 leaders to rule throughout the kingdom. So he's setting up his government because he overthrew Babylon with three administrators over all of the 120. One of them was Daniel. So this is incredible. Now, once again, new king and new kingdom, and Daniel is one of the three rulers of all of Persia, and he's a slave. He's he's not Persian. He's not even Babylonian. He's Jewish, okay? So now he's leading one of the three top leaders. The governors were made accountable to them so the king might not suffer loss. So this is an economic and government position. Now, Daniel, listen to this, so distinguished himself among the administrators and the governors by his exceptional qualities that the king planned to actually set him over the entire kingdom. Unbelievable. He looks at this guy and goes, there's no one like you. And though you're not Persian, I'm considering you putting over you, you over the entire Persian kingdom. Can you imagine this? A Jew leading the Persian kingdom. This is modern day Iran. This is a Jew leading the Iranian kingdom, right? This is the story. So this is what he's planning to do because why Daniel has so distinguished himself. At this, listen here, guys, really important. Track with me. I know we've been going for a little while here and we're dates and names and stories. Hopefully you love history and love the Bible. Listen, though, get, get this in your heart. This is fun. At this, the governors, they tried to find grounds for charges against Daniel and his conduct to government and affairs because they don't like him. They don't want him to rule over them. He's a Jew. And it says, but they were unable to do so. So they look at his life, and they, it says here, they could find no corruption in him because he was trustworthy and neither corrupt nor negligent. Man, let this be the epitaph of your tombstone someday. The world searched my life and could find no breach in my integrity. Unbelievable. Faithfulness, the response of faithfulness, integrity. Uh, integrity, the definition of integrity is that there's nothing hidden in the secret. It's that I'm the same in public as I, as I am in private. There's no double standard. There's no Andy when no one's looking and Andy when he's on stage, 
right? There's no, there's no double. I'm the same behind the scenes as I am before, and my whole life integris means is, um, integrity means like held together. It's strong. There's no cracks. Like it's like if you held up, um, you know, a pot, let's say, made out of pottery, made out of clay, you could examine that thing and go, there's no cracks in it. It's strong. It could hold heat. It could hold a liquid. That's integrity. There's no hidden cracks, right? So it says of Daniel, they could find no corruption in him, because he was trustworthy, neither corrupt nor negligent. Finally, these men said, we will never find any basis for charges against this man, Daniel, unless it has to do with something with the law of his God. So they go, there's, there's no way we're going to find anything wrong with this guy. What an unbelievable conclusion to find on a person's life. This is life goals right here. Just put it up there. Hashtag Daniel. This is what we're going for, right? Life goals that we would live like Daniel. So they go, well, the only way we're going to get him to do anything wrong is if we make a law concerning his God. Because why? He's not going to compromise that. So we got to do something. we got to come up with a scheme. You guys know the story, right? So the administrators, the governors, they went to the king. Just in case you think Darius is a good guy. They go, Darius, live forever. The governors, all of that you've just appointed, all of your special elite council, we've all agreed that the king should issue a law and enforce that law. That anyone who prays to any god or human during the next 30 days except for you should be thrown into the lion's den. This is hilarious. These guys are like, we know how to win. They're, they're the ultimate, you know, you know, they're trying to win the favor of the king. So they come into the king's presence and go, we got an idea, king. You're going to love it. We know as Persians, we worship lots of gods. But we think for the next 30 days, what if you're the only one worshipped, right? And Darius is like, that is such a good idea. And, we, and their proposal is anyone who doesn't, we propose they be thrown into the lion's den. Now, your majesty, issue the decree that, and put it in writing so that no one can alter it in accordance with the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be repealed. So King Darius put the decree in writing. He liked it. He's like, all right, put it in law. Let's write it down and take it to every city in my kingdom. Pass out the flyers, send the announcers, send the messengers to tell them all that we've got a great 30 days ahead of us. I am the only one my kingdom can worship. Everybody's going to bow down to me. So this is wild. You've got to put yourself in the story, praying these stories, imagining it, what it was really like. Now Daniel, 80-some years old. Let's call him mid-80s. Let's call him 85. Daniel learned that the degree had, decree had been published, okay? So in his time, his culture... They would have sent people all throughout the cities on horseback or on foot announcing a law. There's a new law for the next 30 days. They would have made, you know, written out flyers, and they would have pinned them on walls all over the cities. Like, there's a new law for the next 30 days. So he learns about the decree. He went home to his upstairs room where the widow's windows opened towards Jerusalem. Three times a day, he got down on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to his God, just as he had done since his youth. So this is an unbelievable moment. Daniel reads the decree. I mean, just picture it. He's 85. He's Lauren Cunningham. Walking down the streets. He's the third highest, one of the three top leaders in the nation. Reads the decree. He's like, for the next 30 days, only Darius can be worshipped. What did he think? He had to think in his mind. He's like, and the decree is written. Anyone who doesn't is thrown in the lion's den. It's written on there. It's written in the law of the Medes and the Persians, right? And he had to think to himself, well, good a day to die as any. Like, I never protected myself for 80, for these 68 years. I never made decisions to save my own life. All I've ever done is serve my God. And I have been praying with an open window towards Jerusalem that God would restore his praises in Israel three times a day since I was 13 years old and brought into captivity. 
He goes, so I'm not changing that. And if there was ever a day, and do you think God would be mad if Daniel prayed with a closed window? I don't think so. If there was ever a day to pray with a closed window, this was the day. But Daniel goes right where he always did and looks at it. Old man goes, bring it on. Let's roll. Opens the window intentionally towards Jerusalem, and it says he gets down on his knees, which I just want you to picture. I guess you guys haven't met Lauren yet. Typically, you'd have done like a welcome so far. Picture your 85-year-old grandpa getting on his knees. Not a fast and easy process at 85 years old. So Daniel, 85 years old, window open, grooves in the floorboard. 68 years, three times a day, he has gotten on his knees and prayed that God would restore his praises in Israel. Maybe bring his people back from captivity because there was a prophecy from Jeremiah that 70 years they would be in captivity. And you got to know Daniel's in the 68th year. There's no way he's stopping praying now. He knows the prophecy. They're a year or two away from coming back to the promised land. And Daniel's not about to let a lion's den hold the intercession back to bring the breakthrough at 70 years. Looks at that thing, gets down on his knees, opens the window towards Jerusalem, 68, 69 years, somewhere right in there, knowing that they're a year-ish away from the prophecy of Jeremiah being fulfilled, that Israel would come back to their native land, and that praises would be restored in Jerusalem towards the one true God. Gets on his knees, as he had done three times a day since his youth. I just want you to think about that for a moment when we think about faithfulness. Three times a day in a demonic kingdom with really, as far as we know, a few other buddies, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. There had to be others. And in fact, a year later, when they do go back to Israel with the the one that would take them back in this first group of Israelites that would go back, is when they go back, there are thousands that go back. Thousands. Everything that they've been praying actually happens. Gets down on his knees three times a day since his youth. Guys, this kind of faithfulness is the natural response to the delight of God. This kind of faithfulness. A lot of you, even in your questions, you insinuate this kind of question. Is how does this go beyond DTS? I know my home environment. I know my friends. I know my family. I know what's going on. How do I live this for the next 80 years? Daniel is this unbelievable model that if he could do it in Babylon, I promise you, you can do it in Canada. If he could do it in Babylon, I promise you that this is a great reason why some of you actually need to move to Kazakhstan and and actually believe that God could move in Kazakhstan like he has moved historically, right? This is why some of you need to go to Turkey and open your window and begin to pray the move of God in the nation of Turkey. This is the basis that removes fear, even in regards to missions, to go, if Daniel could flip Babylon on its head, and then Daniel could flip Persia on his head, what can God do today? Through faithful people who are simply responding to the delight of God through his faithfulness, and this is Daniel's response. So, let's keep going. Window open, then... It says that these men went as a group and they found Daniel. How did they do that so quick? Everybody knew Daniel prayed three times a day with an open window. How strange he would have been in an idol-worshiping kingdom to be the one guy who doesn't worship idols and prays to a city, over a city, with an open window for an impossible situation. Are you ready for this? Impossible situation that an entire nation would bless their slaves to go back to that nation as a potential future competitor to their own kingdom. 
Everybody knows Daniel's lost his mind. Oh, you're talking about that foolish old man that somehow has government favor that opens his window to pray that his nation would be restored and that his slave people would return to that nation. He goes, that old man, he just babbles three times a day. So when this thing gets passed, where do they know to go? Right where Daniel is, three times a day. Everybody knows where Daniel is three times a day. So they go right to it because they had, they'd hatched the scheme from the very beginning. So they went to the king, and they spoke to him about the royal decree. Did you not publish a decree that during the next 30 days, anyone who prays to any god or human except you would be thrown into the lion's den? King answered, the decree stands. He goes, I loved it. I stand by it. It was a great law. In accordance with the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be repealed. Then they said to the king, Daniel, who is the one of the exiles, he's a slave is what they're saying, from Judah, pays no attention to you your majesty, or to the decree you put in writing. He still prays three times a day. They all know he prays three times a day. Daniel didn't make a big announcement. I pray three times a day. They know he's so known and his habits are so known three times a day. When the king heard this, he was greatly distressed. He was determined to rescue Daniel and make every effort until sundown to save him. Then the men went as a group to King Darius and said to him, remember your majesty that according to the law you made that no issue or edict can be changed. So the king gave the order. They brought Daniel and they threw him into the lion's den, 85, 86 years old, thrown into the lion's den. The king said to Daniel before he throws him in, may your God, whom you serve continually, rescue you. This guy wanted to be worshipped for 30 days. He looked at Daniel, old man, chucked in a den of lions and goes, Daniel, may your God, who you serve continually, let continually be written over a generation. Let Gen Z be known as the continually generation, not the roller coaster Christianity generation, not the camp high generation, not the few good years and then I burnt out generation. Let Gen Z be known as the continually serves their God generation. Let's write this over the generation. He says, let your God whom you serve continually be able, um, to save you. Uh, a stone was brought and placed over the mouth of the den. The king sealed it with his own signet ring, with the rings of his nobles, so that Daniel's situation might not be changed. Then the king returned to his palace, spent the night without eating, without any entertainment being brought to him, and he could not sleep. He's in anguish over Daniel. At the first light of dawn, the king got up, hurried to the lion's den. When they came near to the den, he called to Daniel in an anguished voice. He has had a change of heart. And an anguished voice, Daniel, servant of the living God. Where does he get off even saying that? Servant of the living God, the one true God, has your God. And he says it again, whom you serve continually. Has he been able to rescue you from the lions? Now, if you're Daniel, I want you to get yourself in his shoes for a moment. 85 years old, you're the third highest ruler in the nation. You rule over those governors who talk the king into making that law. You're their boss. And you're 85 at this point. You just, you know, you're a boss. Like, he's a leader in the nation. And if you're Daniel, which, you know, 85 years old, chucked in a lion's den, and we know the story, what was he thinking? The moment he got lowered into that thing, and the lions are all around him, and the first few seconds, he's like, they're not eating me. But there's not like some, you know, muzzle that he can see that's placed over every lion. All night long, he's got to wonder when that might change. There's no guarantees. All night long, he is sitting in a pit with roaming lions. How would you feel about Darius in this moment? How would you respond to Darius in this moment? Be like, you idiot king, and your ego is what landed me here. 
He goes, now you're kind of getting it. You're calling my God the living God, but you're the one I spent all night. You're the reason I spent all night in a den full of lions. Your desire to be worshipped by your people. I don't know about you, but I'd be a little bit frustrated. So he says to has your God who you continually served, has he rescued you from the lions? Daniel answered, first things out of his mouth. This is so ridiculous. May the king live forever. What? May the king live forever. Unoffended. Unoffended. Every reason to be offended. Every reason to be jaded. Every reason to be angry. Every reason to go, I'm alive, but I cannot believe you put me here. Every reason. And his first sentence, may the king live forever. The unoffendable heart. Friends, it is so important for this generation that we would embrace an unoffended life. The world is out to offend us. God is out to tenderize us. And Daniel, all through the night, tenderized by the Lord in his nearness, says, may the king live forever. My God sent his angel, and he shut the mouths of the lions. They have not hurt me because I was found innocent in his sight, nor have I ever done any wrong before you, your majesty. The king was overjoyed, gave the order and lift Daniel out of this den. And when Daniel was lifted from the den, no wound was found on him because he had trusted in his God. At the king's command, the men who had falsely accused Daniel were brought in and thrown into the lion's den, along with their families. Before they reached the floor of the den, the lions overpowered them and crushed all of their bones. It's a little bleak there. Verse 25, listen to this, guys. This is so crazy. This is the Daniel generation. Think about the power of your faithfulness. We often think that the power of our lives are these really great climactic moments that we're living for, these heroic moments where we took the bullet, this heroic moment where we preached and a thousand got saved, these heroic moments. We think these climactic moments are really what advances the kingdom. No, no, no. 68 years, three times a day, calluses on his knees, the kingdom still worshiping idols, the king still wants to be worshiped, and yet Daniel, faithful, faithful, praying, never giving up. And here's the result. King Darius wrote to all nations and peoples of every language on earth. Daniel writes, To every, or sorry, the king, Darius, writes to every nation on earth, and this is what he writes. May you prosper greatly. This letter goes all over the known world. Every language that the Persians knew got this letter. Every nation that the Persians knew got this letter. May you prosper greatly. I issue a decree that in every part of my kingdom, which they ruled over the entire region, people must fear and reverence the God of Daniel. Come on, guys. They don't even know who Daniel is. And he's like, you'll find out. In my kingdom, every corner of it, I decree. Yes, the king who just decreed that he should be worshipped for 30 days, I'm changing my decree. Breaking my own law. And I decree that from now on, in every part of my kingdom, people must fear and reverence the God of Daniel. And then listen to this. For he is the living God. He endures forever. His kingdom will not be destroyed. His dominion will never end. He rescues and he saves. He performs signs and wonders in the heavens and on the earth. He has rescued Daniel from the power of the lions. So Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus, the Persian. End of Daniel's life. End of Daniel's life right there. Unbelievable. 
One of the greatest prophecies over the nature and the character of God written by a pagan idol-worshiping king. Why? Faithfulness. Don't underestimate the power of daily faithfulness. We all want the big moment. We're all living for the big moment. Guys, there aren't big moments. The big moment is you, 6 a.m., made your bed, and you're reading your Bible. (laughs) 6 a.m., bed is made, Bible is open, heart is on fire. Darius is writing a letter to every single language on earth that there's one God. Come on, guys. The big moment is when no one else is looking. The big moment is when you're a little tired, a little bored, and you keep going. The big moment is when you don't understand the verse and the Bible's getting a little dreary, and you keep going. The big moment is when tragedy hits, you lose a family member, can't understand why they weren't healed, don't understand the whole story, and you run to God. That's the big moment. Big moment, find yourself in a dark nation, not many believers, Spend two, three years, don't see a single person saved. Next day, open window, on your knees, save the nation. That's the big moment, the big moment. We all want the moment when the person's raised from the dead, but we don't realize the real moment is the years and years of faithfulness and prayer that led to that moment when that person got raised from the dead. But guess what? That person got raised from the dead on Monday. Well, Tuesday came. What'd you do on Tuesday? Made your bed, read your Bible faithfulness. We need to make a bigger deal out of faithfulness. We've made such a big deal out of climactic moments. Make a bigger deal out of daily, beautiful, enduring faithfulness to God. It is the big deal. Why don't you stand? Worship team, jump up. Zane, jump up here. You're going to lead everybody into where we're going to respond and jump into this. But I just want to pray for the grace for faithfulness and endurance over everybody on here. In here, I want to write endurance over Gen Z. I, I want to write faithfulness over Gen Z. I want to write wake up, make your bed, read your Bible over Gen Z. I want to write like never give up over Gen Z. I want to write, I want to grit over Gen Z. So, Holy Spirit, I just pray that this room right here would embrace patience and endurance, would embrace faithfulness day in and day out, would embrace boredom and even love those boring moments, God. That we wouldn't live from one high moment to another, one ecstatic moment to another. We would live for the daily rhythms of loving you, Father. I pray for the joy of early mornings, open Bibles, and fiery hearts, God. I pray for the joy of sharing the gospel and getting rejected again and yet never giving up, God. I pray for the joy of facing a crisis and running to God. Father, I just pray that this would be a room full of people with foreheads like flint who would never give up, and all the while their fuel would be the delight of God. Their fuel would be the furniture-flipping, sheep-seeking, sun-capturing God who would get their hearts so deeply that faithfulness would be the natural response. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you so much for listening. If you want to know more about DTS and Fighting for Against, you can check out our website at ywamcona.com or reach out to us on our social media platforms. For more on living a life of faithfulness, stay right here on Fighting for Against Podcast.